Well, morning. Good to see you. It wouldn't be the same without you. Um, we, uh, as has been alluded to earlier, are working our way through the book of Acts together. We've been doing it since pretty much the beginning uh, of this year. Uh, and as Mark hinted, we are fast approaching the end uh, of this series. This is probably going to be the penultimate talk. So, uh, We're getting close now. Uh, Really, the whole section towards the end of the book of Acts could be titled The Sufferings of Paul, because if you've been around the last few weeks, you'll know it's like one bad thing happening to him after another. He's been severely flogged and thrown into prison. Uh, He's also been the victim of a whole range of false accusations. Uh, He's even survived violent assassination attempts. In today's passage, Acts 27, uh, we're going to see Paul caught in a storm and ending up being shipwrecked. Uh, If you remember, just a bit of the backstory, Paul has appealed to Rome because he doesn't think he's going to get a fair trial anywhere around Judea. So he's in this ship heading for Rome under the custody of a bunch of soldiers when all of a sudden they get caught up in this ferocious storm. Uh, I think after the events of the last week and what's been on our TV screens, you can get a sense of how absolutely petrifying it would be to be caught at sea in a fierce storm. Uh, For Paul, the storm goes on for two whole weeks and threatens to wipe them all out. What I want to show you today is that in many respects, the ways that Paul deals with his literal storm teaches us something about how we can go about dealing with all of the various storms that we face in life. You want to know how to handle trouble? Interested in knowing how to get through difficulties? You want to know how to deal with bouts of suffering? Well, if you do, I think we see in the example of Paul how to cope with those things. We see uh, from how he deals with his storm how we can deal with ours. Let's pick up the story in verse 13 of Acts 27. When a light wind began blowing from the south, the sailors thought they could make it. So they pulled up anchor and sailed close to the shore of Crete. But the weather changed abruptly and a wind of typhoon strength called a northeaster burst across the island and blew us out to sea. The sailors couldn't turn the ship into the wind, so they gave up and let it run before the gale. We sailed along the sheltered side of a small island named Corda, where with great difficulty we hoisted aboard the lifeboat being towed behind us. Then the sailors bound ropes around the hull of the ship to try and strengthen it. They were afraid of being driven across to the sandbars of Sirtis off the African coast, so they lowered the sea anchor to slow the ship and were driven before the wind. The next day, as gale force winds continued to batter the ship, the crew began throwing the cargo overboard. The following day, they even took some of the ship's gear and threw that overboard as well. The terrible storm raged for many days blotting out the sun and the stars until at last all hope was gone. No one had eaten for a long time, because if you're on a boat in choppy water, 
Uh, Food is the last thing you feel like consuming. Finally, Paul called the crew together and said, men, uh, you should have listened to me in the first place and not left Crete. You would have avoided all this damage and loss. Why didn't you listen to me? It's all because you didn't listen to me, he says. But verse 22, take courage. None of you will lose your lives even though the ship will go down. For last night, an angel of the Lord God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me. And he said, don't be afraid, Paul, for you will surely stand trial before Caesar. What's more, God in his goodness has granted safety to everyone sailing with you. So take courage, for I believe God, it will be just as he said. But we will be shipwrecked on an island. About midnight, on the 14th night of the storm, as we were being driven across the Sea of Adria, the sailors sensed land was near. They dropped a weighted line and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A little later, they measured again and found it was only 90 feet deep. At this rate, they were afraid we would soon be driven against the rocks along the shore, so they threw out four anchors from the back of the ship and prayed for daylight. Then the sailors tried to abandon the ship. They lowered the lifeboat as though they were going to put out anchors from the front of the ship. But Paul saw what was happening and said to the commanding officer and the soldiers, you will all die unless the sailors stay aboard. So the soldiers cut the ropes to the lifeboat and let it drift away. And to cut an even longer story short, uh, the ship does get completely destroyed by the waves But at the same time, all 276 passengers aboard swim safely to shore uh, to that place in Malta, which even to this very day is known as St. Paul's Bay. So there's our story. I think there are three things, or at least three things, but for now we'll make it three things that we can see in this story that are absolutely crucial for us to grasp if we today are to handle the storms that we face in life. Here's the first thing. First of all, we need to grasp something of the paradox of storms. I don't know if you spotted it as I read the story. Verses 22 through to 24, remember everyone is scared for their lives, but Paul says to them, last night an angel of God visited me and said that everyone should be mightily encouraged, because although we are going to be shipwrecked, no one's going to die, so be courageous. But then, down at the end of the passage, verses 30 and 31, we're told that the sailors were still understandably scared, and it says they attempted to escape from the ship by sneakily letting down a lifeboat. Have a poor remember, he discovers what's going on, warns the commanding officer, saying, you will all die unless the sailors stay aboard. Now, you see the problem there. First of all, Paul says, God's assured me no one is going to lose their life. Yet, when he sees the sailors leaving, he says, unless these guys stay in the boat, you are all going to die. See the problem? See the contradiction? I think the reason we see a contradiction here is, I think most of us tend to be either or types of people. In our minds, if God is totally in charge and it's absolutely determined beforehand that everyone's going to live, who cares what people do? I mean, if God's totally in charge, then our choices, our actions, our behavior doesn't really matter. We can do what we like, God will still do what he's going to do. 
Or if on the other hand, what we do, our actions do matter and our choices do have real consequences, then in our minds, in some way, God is limiting himself or in some way he's holding back or he's not ultimately in control. So we're either or people, but Paul is both and. In other words, Paul is assuming that on the one hand, every single thing that happens is determined beforehand by God. And yet on the other hand, our individual choices do still have consequences. They really do matter. In other words, it's not either or, it is both and. Whereas you and I tend to say, well, look, it's either 100% God's in charge and 0% what I'm doing matters, or it's 100% I'm free, 0% God's in control. Maybe it's 50-50 or 80-20 or 20-80 or or whatever. Paul says, no, God is 100% in charge. And at the same time, you are 100% responsible for what you do. See what I mean about it being a paradox. Let me give you a couple of real examples to try to illustrate this whole thing. If you're familiar with the story of Jacob way back in the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, Jacob really screws up, really messes up. He lies to his father, gets his brother mad with rage, ends up having to flee for his life. So what Jacob did wrong very much forced him to leave home. It changed the course of his life. Yet as a result, he ends up meeting a woman, getting married, having children, and one of his descendants ends up being none other than Jesus, the Messiah. What Jacob did was wrong, and it had very real consequences for his life, yet at the same time, it was still part of God's plan to eventually bring about the Messiah. And just in case you're wondering, the Messiah is not plan B, it's very much plan A. So you're thinking, well, okay, if it was God's plan all along, then obviously what Jacob did was okay. No, it wasn't okay. It was wrong. He very much screwed up his life. He shouldn't have done it. Yet God still totally used it. It was absolutely what God wanted. Similarly, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter famously stands up on the day of Pentecost and starts addressing the people of Jerusalem, he says, God's prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. Now, a bit of audience participation is called for here. Was Jesus' death on the cross determined by God? Was Jesus' death on the cross planned by God? What do you think? Yes, correct answer. Question number two, so were those people who helped that happen responsible for their actions? Yes, absolutely they were. were. Now, maybe you're thinking, but come on a moment, if they were used by God, then surely that means they had to do it. Yes, they did. It was part of God's predetermined plan, yet at the same time, it was still their choice. It's like God ordains exactly what is supposed to come to pass through all of our free choices, which we are still totally responsible for. In other words, they go together. It's not 50-50 or 80-20, it's 100-100. 
Now, why am I going into all of this pretty complex detail? Well, I think it's absolutely crucial when you hit problems and difficulties to know this paradox, that what I do really does matter and does have very real consequences, and yet at the same time to know there is still a plan, and it's not all spiraling out of control, and God continues to know what He's doing. It's very important that we hold those two things together in balance, because people either say, well, look, it's all predetermined, so what I do doesn't matter, or I'm totally free, and God's not in control of everything. But I believe the most practical thing in the world is to believe that it is both. I mean, you can see it in Paul here in this story. If it was all just predetermined, then in the midst of the storm, he'd be passive, indifferent, cynical. I mean, who cares? It's all rigged. It doesn't matter. We can't do anything. It's just all in the hands of God. And if it was all up to him, I tell you, he'd be pretty pressured trying to work out a solution. It'd be pretty frightened. It'd be completely panicked. But you read that story, Paul is neither passive nor panicked. He knows what's going on. In the midst of it, he's not afraid. He's saying to the people around him, be courageous, and he's making good, wise, godly decisions. Listen, there is nothing more practical than to believe that God is 100% in charge and everything that happens in the universe is in some way according to his will, and yet I am also personally absolutely responsible and free, and what I do does have consequences, and so I need to make sure I use all my wisdom, my skills, my gifts, my strength to live the best I can. So that's the paradox of storms, that God is in charge and yet at the same time, what I do really does matter. Let's move on. Second thing I want us to see is something of the purpose of storms. See, the paradox of storms, now the purpose of storms. What do I mean by purpose? Well, why does God even send storms? Why does God allow us to face difficult circumstances? That's the big question. Why does God allow suffering and evil? Why have bad things happened to me? Anyone interested in the answer to that question? Yeah, a few of you are, so I will keep going. Well, just at the start of the 10, one thing that's interesting about this whole picture, this, this metaphor, this illustration, if you like, of storms, is if you are in a boat and a storm comes, and if you're able to keep hold of the rudder, when the storm is over, probably, if you survive it, you'll be closer to your destination. It's like the wind drives you towards your destination faster than if you just had a clear sky with no wind. So, if you can survive the storm, you can actually be better off. I think that begins to get us into what the Bible says about storms and suffering. I think there's a general purpose and a specific purpose for every storm that comes to you. First of all, the general purpose is good. I want to show you two verses, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. First of all, let me just give you a bit of the backstory behind the Old Testament verse. 
already touched uh, on the example, the, the story of the life of Jacob. As you may know, uh, Jacob ended up having 12 sons. His favorite son, anyone know who that was? Joseph, yes, good answer, correct. And as each of those sons grew up, I think it's fair to say the family was an absolute mess because favoritism always does that. Joseph, he's growing up spoiled, selfish, pretty shallow. His other brothers are growing up bitter and hardened and competitive and pretty angry. Until one day, the brothers find Joseph in this very remote place where no one can see what they're doing, and they decide to sell him into slavery to Egypt. And to his credit, Joseph accepts the situation. He works hard as a slave. But someone falsely accuses him, and he ends up being thrown into prison. It's like Joseph has one bad thing after another happen to him. Like the Apostle Paul, really. If you know the story... You know, it's only because he's sold into slavery, and even only because he's thrown into that particular prison and meets certain people in that prison, that he is eventually able to find himself in a position of power and influence over the whole of Egypt, from where he's able to put together this relief program that ends up saving many thousands of people from starvation, including, incidentally, his own immediate family. In other words, If all of those bad things hadn't happened, the good things wouldn't have happened either. Which is why, right at the end of the story, in Genesis 50 verse 20, Joseph is able to say to his brothers, look, you meant all of this for evil, but God meant it for good. That's almost exactly the same thing that Paul says in Romans 8, 28, where he tells us, all things work together for good to those who love God and accord according to his purpose. Now Paul doesn't say, look on the bright side, every cloud has a silver lining. He's not saying that. He doesn't say, well, if you look at it from a certain perspective, every terrible thing is actually really good. He doesn't say that. He doesn't go there. He's saying that from the vantage point of eternity we will be able to see that God has very carefully weaved things together, worked out everything, so even the worst things that ever happen will end up in some way accomplishing something good. Joseph got right to the end of his life. He was able to see why God let all the bad things happen to him. You meant it for evil, he said, but God is using that evil to bring about the very opposite of what it originally intended. Now look, let's be real. We may not be able to see that in this life, but nonetheless, that is God's purpose in storms. And Joseph's a great example of that. Another person we can look at is Jesus himself. Remember Jesus dying on the cross, all of his closest friends, his followers, seeing what's happening, saying that I don't see how God could ever bring any good out of this. But of course, all of the evil that was done to Jesus on that day did what? It accomplished the exact opposite of what was intended. It accomplished the salvation of the whole world. Let me ask you this. Why do you think it is that 
almost no one says, look, I don't believe in God because God the Father allowed his son to die. Almost no one says that. Do you know why? I think it's because we know why God the Father allowed Jesus to die. We know that the perpetrators intended it for evil, but God all along intended it for good. And there's a whole book, the Bible, that explains it. It's a pretty long book. There's a whole lot in it. But if you read the whole book, you'll get to the end and say, look, I can see why God allowed that storm. I see why God allowed that to happen. Which is all well and good. I think the problem still is, I still don't know why God is allowing these things to happen to me. I still don't know why God is allowing my storm. Because let's face it, most of us don't get to be like Joseph, we're able to see all of the reasons why God allowed the bad things to happen. And none of us have this whole book written about our lives that can just in, in neat detail explain it all to us. But nonetheless, when you are in the storm, you can trust God that he can turn it all around for good. There's a lady called Elizabeth Elliot. She lived this. Uh, Her husband was tragically martyred by the tribes that he literally gave his life to reach with the good news about Jesus. And she said this, to trust God when we do not understand him is to treat him as God and not as another human being. I guess the question is, even if you don't understand from a human perspective, are you willing to trust that God, because he's God, might somehow be able to bring good from your situation? Now, as I say, we might not see what it is. We may not see all of it. I can tell you one other thing. I mentioned there's a general and a specific purpose The specific purpose is always at least this. When suffering happens to you, when you go through storms, it is always and everywhere an opportunity for you to grow in godliness. In verses 33 and 34 of this story in Acts, Paul continues to reassure the people on the boat. He says, look, you've been so worried that you haven't touched food for two weeks. Please eat something now for your own good for not a hair of your heads will perish. Now, I might be wrong. I'm speculating here. But I reckon Luke, who penned these words in Acts, is wanting us to make the connection with the place in his gospel, in Luke 21, where he records the words of Jesus, where Jesus says, some of you will be put to death. But the same words, not a hair of your head will perish. He continues, by standing firm, you will win your souls. What Jesus is saying in that passage is that there is something about suffering that in some way can strengthen your soul. Because when a storm happens to you, it kind of tests what you're building your life on. It's like if you're living for your job or for sex or for romance, if you're living for looking good and impressing others, getting affirmation from the people around you, if you're living for having money or having this or having that, those things effectively own you, that they, they grasp your soul. 
And if anything goes wrong with those things that you are choosing to base your life on, you'll end up being devastated. It's like my, my, my whole reason for living is crumbling around me. But if you love God, and if God's love is the most important thing in your life, then you will be able to handle storms. Because however bad they are, however difficult they are to get through, they cannot separate you from the love of God. So storms help you see where your security is. It's like in the midst of the storm, you're faced with a choice. What are you going to do when you go through a storm? I mean, you spend the rest of your life feeling self-pity. You spend the rest of the life in bitterness or feeling like you're a failure compared with the people around you. Or you can choose to reinvest your soul in Jesus. You say, well, from now on, regardless of how it's been up until now, from now on is Jesus I'm going to live for. Let's be real, storms shake you. They're not pleasant. I wouldn't wish storms on anyone. But if in the midst of them you cling to Jesus, then when the next storm hits, you will find yourself in a stronger place. Which I think is at least part of what it means when it says, by standing firm in suffering, you will win your soul. It's like people who haven't been through storms, people who haven't suffered, don't really know themselves. They don't know their strengths, their weaknesses. But standing firm in the midst of a storm inevitably strengthens your soul. Now, I'm aware that sounds great in theory, preaches reasonably well, but what was it in particular in real life that enabled Paul to come through the storm better off instead of worse off? Well, the last thing to show you is this. Paul is experiencing God's presence right in the midst of the storm. I think for many of us, when bad things happen, it might be a financial problem, a relational betrayal, maybe things haven't worked out the way you'd wanted, perhaps right now, today, it's, it's just a battle being here. You're, you're in the midst of a situation that is very hard. You know, often we can be tempted to say, can't we, look, I think God has abandoned me. And we can end up concluding that either I'm being punished by God in some way for wrongdoing in my life, or alternatively, God just doesn't care. But that's not where Paul goes. Notice how he says in verse 23, Last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me. It's like in the midst of the storm, Paul is saying, I know I still belong to him. Come what may, I'm convinced I'm his. And I believe he does still love me. And I'm convinced he remains committed to me. Paul refuses to make the mistake I think we often make in the midst of suffering. He doesn't give in to despair. He doesn't conclude that God is punishing him or abandoning him. Even when his life is in grave danger, he's able to say, I know my God is with me. Well, how can he know that? How can you know that? How can you be sure if bad things happen that God is still with you and really hasn't abandoned you? 
Here's how you can know. One last passage to look at, then we're done. Matthew 12, Jesus, slightly curious passage, calls himself the true or the greater or the genuine Jonah. Jesus says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man, referring to himself, so will Jesus be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. But now, speaking of himself, Jesus says someone greater than Jonah is here. And you remember the story of Jonah, you remember what happened to him? Jonah had been told by God, go preach to Nineveh. But because of his inherent racist attitudes, Jonah refused. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. So he jumps in a boat with a bunch of sailors and goes in the opposite direction. And you know how the story pans out. God sends a storm. In this instance, it is a storm of God's wrath. It's a storm of his judgment. And when Jonah sees the storm, he knows what's going on. He knows he deserves it, that it's his punishment. But he also sees it is endangering the lives of the other sailors. So he says to the sailors, just throw me overboard. Throw me into the midst of the storm. Let the storm consume me and then you'll be okay. Then you'll be saved. They do and he is. He's consumed and they're saved. Now when Jesus claims to be the true or the genuine or the greater Jonah here's what I think he means. I think he's saying, in reality, there is a storm that you do deserve. I mean, all human beings, all of us, in some way have sinned. We've fallen short of the glory, the standards of God. We don't love God all of the time with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, all of our minds. We don't always love our neighbors as ourselves. We deserve the storm of God's wrath. But Jesus says, if you believe in me, then you can know for sure that I took that storm for you. He says, I was the true Jonah. I was consumed by it so you could be saved. I was abandoned on the cross. I was abandoned in my suffering because I got the suffering. I bore the suffering. I carried the suffering on myself that you deserve so you wouldn't have to. And so now, when you go through storms, when you suffer, you can know it is not the punishment of God because Jesus has already borne that for you on the cross. And you can also be sure that God is with you in the midst of the storm. And he has the power to bring you out on the other side. How are you going to get through it? Well, you need to know that someone is with you. That you're not alone in the storm. And only Christianity, of all the religions on the face of the earth, says that God himself has personally been with us in our suffering. Only Christianity even claims that there is a God who has suffered. Have you gone through the pain of losing a child? So has God the Father on the cross. You've been betrayed. Have you had people stab you in the back? You're experiencing pain in your body. You're facing poverty. You're facing death. So has God. 
He has faced all of those things. He has experienced it all firsthand. He understands personally how you feel. And he's with you. And so we can be absolutely certain that he is with us in our suffering. He is there. And if you believe in him, if you put your trust in him, you can be sure that the storm you're experiencing is not his punishment for you. It's simply part of the brokenness of this world that God is in his sovereignty controlling to eventually bring good. And in the meantime, it can help you grow in godliness. If you embrace Jesus in the midst of the storm, it can turn you more into a Christ-like person. And that is what will happen if you know he's with you. Let's pray.